This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You can get a feel for what life is like as a refugee with a visit to Pearl Street in Boulder. Doctors Without Borders, the global aid organization, has set up a mock refugee camp on the pedestrian mall. We toured the exhibition called Forced from Home, and it starts with a decision. So, Ryan, imagine that you are living in a village somewhere in Africa and conflict suddenly erupts, and you have about 30 seconds to gather whatever earthly possessions you can get. My guide is Dr. David Kuyama, a vascular surgeon at the University of Colorado and a Doctors Without Borders volunteer. He most recently performed surgeries in South Sudan. We're standing in front of a display with pictures of household objects. So you have 30 seconds to pick five items here that you would take with you. Okay, you're going to start the clock. Here we go. Uh, 29 seconds left. I am going to bring... Uh, money. That's one thing I can choose from this wall. Uh, documents, okay. A passport seems like a wise thing. Um, you have about 15 seconds 15 left. seconds. Okay, I'm going to go with the necklace jewelry because that could be valuable on the road. You know, this fishing pole is a good idea in case I need to be five, self-sustaining. Four, and, three, oh, baby two, formula. One, okay. Those Eager are planes coming. It's time to hit the road. That is an impossible decision. And I have forgotten to bring keys in case I have to return. I didn't think to bring a smartphone, that was an option, or a motorcycle, some sort of vehicle. We're asking people to really put themselves into the shoes of people who are having to give up all of their earthly belongings, all of their security, and hit the road. It's often that refugees are on foot or they're packed into boats, and the idea is you have to travel light because you may be traveling what, hundreds of miles? Hundreds or thousands of miles. People leaving sub-Saharan Africa and making it all the way to Europe. People leaving from East Asia, traveling by boat. The pathways that people are having to take are simply so strenuous that they can't bring everything. You have worked in several African countries, including most recently the world's newest country, South Sudan. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been the site of a lot of strife and the folks there who are displaced, who are forced to leave their villages, are not necessarily refugees in the truest sense of that word because they're not leaving South Sudan. They're displaced within their own country. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So globally, there are about 66 million people on the move right now. 66 million people who've been forced to leave their homes. Exactly. Fleeing for their lives or safety. And two-thirds of those people have not yet actually crossed an international border. So they are actually not considered refugees or asylum seekers yet. They're what we call internally displaced peoples. And that means that there is a whole host of supports not available to them. Yeah, that's correct. You were in South Sudan at an internally displaced person's camp. So it's not quite a refugee camp again, but it was massive, right? It was massive. It had all the characteristics of a refugee camp, just what you would think of in a movie, basically a tent city. And all of these people, 120,000, were crammed into about one square mile. And the health challenges that that kind of situation presents are also extraordinary. Well, we're going to go further into the tour and have you tell us some of the stories that you encountered. But before we do, Dr. Kuyama has some news for me. I have to give up some of the things I took when I fled. When you were transiting on the boat, you had to pay a smuggler. So you had to get rid of one of your items by giving it to them. Um... Okay, I'll give up some of this money. Okay. And actually, the cost of a boat across the Mediterranean runs in the thousands of dollars. So it can certainly wipe out 
any kind of financial resources that many migrants have. I'm losing this jewelry, I'm guessing, and I'm probably losing this fishing pole for that matter. <laughs> probably. And then in the course of actually making it across an international border, you had to give up something as well. Another way refugees might part with their money or possessions, Dr. Kuyama says, is to be sold a life jacket if they're crossing, say, the Mediterranean, only to learn the jacket is made of foam that sinks when it gets wet. So the trek can be deadly, long, and expensive. And if you're fortunate enough to make it to a refugee camp, daily life can be a struggle. Take access to water, for instance. There are basically international standards for how much water is required to provide people safe humanitarian care. So the basic minimum per person is two gallons of water per day. And that's for all of their basic needs, including drinking, food, and their personal hygiene. Now you have here uh, these buckets of water. How much is this? Yeah, these are jerry cans. That's two gallons of water. And why don't you try giving it a lift and see how It's not it even totally full. Quite heavy. That's quite heavy, right? Now imagine that you are the caregiver for a family of three and you have to take six gallons of water with you back to your home, which may be a mile away. Imagine having to carry all that weight. That is to say, I am having to walk from my camp to whatever the source of water is and back, toting these heavy jerry cans. Absolutely. In comparison, how many gallons of water per day do you think an American, an average American would use? I'm guessing one of those jerry cans is about two minutes of my morning shower. You'd be pretty close to right. The average American uses 90 gallons of water per day. So we're talking about a fraction of the water that people are actually having access to in many of these camps. Again, the point of comparison is two gallons a day versus 90. That's absolutely right. And even though it's a small amount of water in comparison, it's still an incredible amount of work for people to actually get that water to their homes. We're coming upon a medical tent now that is similar to those operated by Doctors Without Borders. It's virtually identical. This, uh, this tarp tent is typical of any of our projects. Yeah, I understand that just seeing it brings you back to a place like South Sudan. It really does. It feels like I'm back there. Now, you are normally doing vascular surgery when you're in the United States. I what am. kind of operations are you doing at displaced persons camps or refugee camps? I'm basically being asked to do anything that requires general anesthesia. And that can include obstetrics and gynecology. C-sections are actually the most common operation I'm asked to perform. C-sections? Yeah. Why? Well, you know, maternal health is a, a huge issue in a lot of these camps. Um, obstructed labor is very common. Uh, there are a number of reasons for that. I'm guessing that malnutrition might have something to do with not being able to have a vaginal birth. Absolutely. So it's what we call cephalopelvic disproportion. It basically means that the ability for the bones to open wide enough for you to give birth naturally just doesn't happen. And so C-sections are necessary. C-sections are necessary to save the life of both the mother and the child. How many uh, surgeries might you perform in a deployment with Doctors Without Borders, and how long might a deployment last? For surgeons and anesthesiologists, they tend to be between four to six weeks, and I'd say over an average project, I may do anywhere from 15 to 25 operations a day, and maybe three or four of those are major operations. But there was one night, for example, I did five cesarean sections in a row, and it was basically nonstop. Do you sleep? Yeah, the... Uh, the, the sleep comes in fits. So when I was in the Bentiu camp for 24-7. South Sudan. This is in South Sudan. You know, 24-7, being the only surgeon for that kind of population, is extraordinarily exhausting, both physically and mentally. Are the conditions clean enough to operate in safely? 
Well, Doctors Without Borders does a, a great job of doing everything possible to make surgery as, as clean as possible. I was inside of what's called a double enclosed tent, so two layers of tent, and we kept the inside very clean. The flip side to that is if you imagine you're in 120 degree heat in South Sudan and you're now inside two layers of tent and you're also wearing a surgical gown, I mean, there were times where I was about to pass out from heat stroke. What kind of connections do you make with patients? The patient interactions are unforgettable. Some of the, the women who I provided C-sections for actually named their children after me. And I have to tell you that that, that was probably the highest honor that they could have given me. They named their kids David? They did. Well, I guess David in French. David. (laughs) Wow. Your aim here is to give people a sense for what it's like to be displaced. Do you think that it risks sugarcoating it at all? Or, or, you know, I, I, I walk out the door and think, well, now I know what it's like to be in a refugee camp. You know, it's, it's impossible to fully recreate the, the true experience of being in a camp like Bentiu in South Sudan. It's such an overwhelming experience. But our hope here is that by making this a very interactive exhibit and by bringing actual materials that people can see and touch and handle, that we at least provide some flavor of it, some ability to actually humanize the people and add a face and a story to the statistics. Yeah, what more objects stand out to you? Seeing a lot of the medical uh, supplies that uh, I've had to interact with in the past, like the the extensive personal protective equipment to prevent spread of disease, the cholera beds, the cold chain supplies. What is a cholera bed? A cholera bed is is basically a a bed that uh, has a hole in it for people who are essentially unable to get themselves to a latrine to actually um, recover uh, and receive treatment without having to leave their bed. They're having to go to the bathroom lying down. That's right. You've created a hole in the bed so that they can do that. I want to note that though refugee camps, as this uh, exhibition shows us, feel very temporary, they're made of tents and sometimes not even actual tents, but makeshift tents pieced together from other items. They feel very temporary and yet these camps often persist for years, decades. Is that right? Well, for example, in Kenya, one of the largest camps in the world is the Dadaab camp. That camp has been there now for over 30 years. You know, as an international community, we don't want these camps to be the end goal for people. We want people to have resettlement in places that are stable, where they can live productive lives. If you're stuck in a refugee camp and that's your final location, that's a challenging objective to achieve. There have been people born, raised, and entering adulthood all in the confines of a camp. That's true. And and just imagine the kind of opportunity that people living in those camps have. It's it's minimal. It's, It's highly restricted. Where are you off to next? In October, I'm headed to Central African Republic. Uh, I'll be there for a six-week deployment. There's Uh, been a lot of instability there. There has been. It's been getting uh, significantly worse. Uh, Doctors Without Borders recently put out a press release about the town I'm going to. It's, It's sort of devolving into a war zone, actually. What do you want people who walk through this to leave with? Is this a political statement? Is there a change in policy that you're advocating for? Well, first and foremost... 
it's important to stress that Doctors Without Borders is not a political organization. We are independent, we are impartial, and we are neutral. That's part of our core mission statement. We're not here to... But you're not neutral on the idea that the United States, for instance, should take in more refugees, correct? The one side that we will take is the side of our patients. And we do think that countries of refuge that are wealthy, like the United States, can do more and should do more to help with refugee resettlement. Do you have concerns that increasing the number of of immigrants, and specifically of refugees, could make the United States more vulnerable? You know, when I look at the reasons that people are coming here, when we look at the people who are leaving Central America to come to the United States, 40% of those people have suffered violence themselves or been threatened with extortion or being forced to join a gang. Another 40% have actually had a loved one killed over the past two years. So the reasons that people are coming here are not to harm America. They're coming here because they are fleeing for their lives and they need safety for themselves and their family. We have a moral obligation to respond to that by welcoming people. Doctor, thank you for being with us. I appreciate it. Thank you for your interest in this uh, exhibition. Dr. David Kuyama, vascular surgeon at the University of Colorado and a Doctors Without Borders volunteer, forced from home, runs through Sunday on Boulder's Pearl Street Mall. Late last month, video of a cheerleader being forced into a split went viral, and we cautioned that this is difficult to listen to. That was at East High School in Denver. The coach was fired. Also last month, the head football coach at Highlands Ranch High School resigned after he reportedly moved a player's car off campus to avoid a drug-sniffing dog. And partly because they say coaches have been abusive, Colorado faces a referee shortage. To reflect on all of this, Rhonda Blanford-Green is here. She's commissioner of the Colorado High School Activities Association. And welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Do these events point to a fundamental problem in youth sports? I would have to say no. That's why they're so newsworthy because they're not happening on a continuous basis. Um, I would have to say that 98%, and I'm just making up a percentage of coaches, do the right thing. The vast majority. The vast majority, absolutely. And so, uh, but with anything else, when you have 2%, you think, you know, what can we do as an organization or with all the different groups that are out there come together? Um, Because I think if you even have one um, where common sense wasn't used, um, it's not about X's and O's or it's not about play calls or anything else, but just really making common sense decisions, whether that's driving a player's car somewhere or whether that's pushing a kid past the point of of teaching to a point of pain, um, you, you take a responsibility for that. So you think this is a question of common sense. We'll talk a bit more about that. But what does it say that people don't want to officiate games because they're tired of being abused? Doesn't that point to something bigger than just a few bad apples? 
Yes. And I, and you know, we, as an association, officiating shortages is a national problem on so many levels from collegiate to youth sports and all of those things. And I think they've identified many um, reasons why officials are getting out of the business. But one of those is abuse, whether that be from coaches, whether that be from parents, whether that even be from kids um, who uh, are disrespecting the profession. And um, so I guess, when you talk about the association, we have a lot of, of things on our plate in which we, we deal with many issues, and one is officiating shortage. And, and if it's about behavior and if it's about belittling, what do you do to change that? Well, um, I've, my, I, I have a person in our office, Tom Robinson, who actually does officials replay. He is inducted in the NFL Hall of Fame. He's done the Orange Bowl. He's done the Rose Bowl. He's done the Sugar Bowl. He really does have content knowledge of officiating and how it's evolved over the years. And we have decided to take a positive approach towards, you know, uh, regenerating interest back in officiating. You know, there's tons of articles that speak to why officials aren't officiating and, and less articles um, out there that say, how do you, you revigorate that? How do you motivate officials? And so, and how do you do that? Well, we have identified some ways and one is looking at some of those surveys that have come out. One is officials recognition, you know, just making them feel like they matter and incorporating them more into our state championship events where we're selling 10,000 tickets. You get three officials out in the center and we make a big deal about, you know what, they've earned the right to be the officials for this this state tournament and making sure that they understand that that without them, this game doesn't go. We have a saying in our office without certified officials is just recess. You know, it's just recess. It's just, it's just, it's just playtime. In right, other words, right. You know, we wanted some more perspective. So uh, this is the president of the Colorado Athletic Directors Association, Dave Hogan, giving some thoughts about what might be contributing not only to the shortage, but some of the events in the news that we've seen recently. I think at times in athletics, emotions run high, especially when the main idea for people is that we have to win. Now, winning's great, and I want our kids to win. I mean, we, you go out and you play to win, but there's great things that you can learn in a win if it's done right, and there's great things you can learn in a loss if it's done right. And I think sometimes our society has gotten away from understanding that a youth, a seventh grade or a sixth grade or a fifth grade football game is not the end all be all to the world for for those young boys or girls that are playing. Ronza, is there more emphasis today on winning than there has been in the past, do you think? I think that obviously if you look at collegiate sports and you look at professional sports, I think that is is definitely the case. Winning can cost winning or losing can cost you your job. Winning or losing can be the difference in filling stadiums or any of those things. But the And, and does that trickle down then, do you think, to the high school? I'm just going to say that the message that comes from our office is that we are bigger than the wins and losses. And and we have adopted a coaching platform that's called the Inside Out Initiative. It's a national platform that comes out of Minnesota that really speaks to building the whole student athlete. And Give me an example of something it says. Okay, so an example of something it says is that um, you can take – what we're really training our coaches is to what 
what do you want these kids to walk away from when they're done with your program? And 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 really taking some things about character education and sportsmanship and respect and team unity. Because, you know, a small percentage of our kids make it to the state tournament. And so we need to let our coaches know a successful season doesn't mean it culminates with a state championship. That would mean that 90% of our teams didn't have a successful season, and that can't be the case. Do you think that scholarships are driving some of this? Uh, that is, the this effort to get better and better and better and to land scholarships and to make the rising cost of college just a bit cheaper through athletic accomplishment? And, and could that be intensifying the environment? I think maybe 25 years ago that was true. I think there's been enough education out there through parents and even the NFL and many of the collegiate institutions have basically said only 3% across the nation will participate in college after high school. I mean, that is a message that's out there and the data shows that, that the majority of the kids... That last senior game, they're done. Yeah, but there are maybe 3% who go on to do that, but aren't there, you know, 10 or 20% who wish that they could? They do wish that Uh they could, um, but, I mean, you have to be realistic. I think that there's a bad rap that goes with... Uh, club sports sometimes that that all of the parents who are involved in club sports and everybody who puts their kids in club sport is seeking the scholarship. And I'm going to tell you, I, I have two kids that played college sports and one of them would not even probably played varsity on her high school team if she didn't play club sports because everybody who started and everybody who played on her team played club sports. So it's a trickle down effect of, of who gets to play and who doesn't. And and it sometimes has to do with just that transition from high school to club sports that even allows you to play on the high school level. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Rhonda Blanford-Green. She's commissioner of the Colorado High School Activities Association. What was your reaction to the Denver East video in which cheerleaders were being forced into a split? Well, I have to say my past life with Chassa for 16 years, I ran the state cheer and dance tournament. I saw it go from 82 schools to 281 schools. Uh, we implemented many programs along the way to train and put uh, cheer coaches out there. And so I think my reaction was one is as the public saw it for the first time, um, was just shock and surprise of, of just, again, I go back to common sense and it, it doesn't even have anything to do with cheer coaching in general just goes with human common sense in terms of when is no no and when do we make decisions as adults overseeing these kids to know even what the level of of skill set is for our kids and and the level of coaching that you are able to apply to those kids so i think there was a lot of bad things going on in that video and I'll say that the coach who was fired uh, before coming to Denver East had been fired from a job as a paid consultant with the Boulder Valley School District following similar complaints. So wh- where is the teeth in all of this? Uh, and is that Chassa's job? Sure. That, um, if, you know, if coaches behave poorly, that there's some consequence. I don't know, from your organization or should that rightly come from the school or from the courts? I think that the response of the school and the accountability piece that was um, accepted by the superintendent in the school district speaks to who ultimately has responsible. 
Uh, the Chasso organization doesn't hire and fire coaches. Mm. Um, actually, this coach followed all the protocols to be um, registered and certified as a cheer coach. Um, and, and so I have to say Denver Public Schools on that end did everything that they needed to do. It's the vetting process that I think you're asking me about, which ultimately belongs no, di- no different if it's a football coach or if it's a teacher or if it's a, a counselor or administrator. It, it falls on the local level. You ran track at Aurora Central High School and then the University of Nebraska. Did you personally experience bad or inappropriate coaching? I tell everybody I've been pretty blessed along my career Mm -hmm. um, to have been surrounded by coaches that had my best interest at heart. And I think, as you can say by my my awards and things that I've done that I'm not really the athlete that maybe would stand for any inappropriateness or, you know, I, I understand getting in shape and, you know, I've, I've crawled after running multiple 400s and I've eaten the wrong thing before a bad practice and have had to crawl away in the grass, you know, um, but there's a difference. And, well, and I just never had abusiveness maybe would be the, the question. I've not had that or experienced that. And it's such an interesting line. I mean, athletes often express gratitude to coaches who push them into places they didn't think they could get to on their own. You know, what? where is the line between that and abuse? I, I, it, it's a gray area, I gather. I I think, I, you know, I also coached. I coached high school and I coached at the University of Wyoming. And there, I don't know that it's that gray. I think oh. that if you're a prepared coach and you understand what the end goal is and you understand the level and the skill set of your athletes as well as what your coaching abilities are, you combine those. And and if I have a hurdler that I know can't run a 13-2 or I'm, I'm, you know, I'm putting that time out there and I know that that athlete's best time could probably be a 13 Thirteen seven. My goal is to get my athlete to thirteen seven. I don't watch a YouTube video and see the world championships and start pushing my athlete to be a thirteen two. And so I think that what we saw there was just a, the inability of a coach to recognize not only their ability to coach to a certain level, but also the ability of their their athletes to reach. Uh, goals that maybe they weren't capable of doing and forcing them into that was not going to get them there any faster. But but pain can come with good coaching, can't it? Yes, but uh-huh. but again, like you said to the listeners prior to listening to that video, it would only take most coaches one second to realize that that was not good pain and that was not healthy pain that was going to reach an ultimate goal. Um, I, I guess you, you've said here that there are some bad apples. You've also said that, that parent behavior and coach behavior may contribute to the, the lack of interest among referees these days. Do you have a particular message for parents who are pushing their kids, who think that their kids are the exception and will make it into, you know, college sports? Well, there are multiple studies out there that, that that says that the number one reason that kids participate in athletics and activities is it's because it's fun. It's social. And it's about connecting with their schools and with the kids in their within their schools or their teams. And so 
I was just so blessed that my kids picked sports that I didn't know a whole lot about. But my advice out there for parents would be to, you know what, go to the game, get a bag of popcorn, buy a hot dog, and be there, cheer for your team, cheer for your coaches, and make this experience fun. It goes way, I spoke earlier about, it goes way too fast. Don't get hyper-involved in something that's really not about you. Remember the fun, I think you're saying, fundamentally. Rhonda, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Rhonda Blanford-Green is the new commissioner of the Colorado High School Athletic Association. Earlier this year, we invited a small group of Coloradans to dinner. Coloradans with different political views who might not normally sit down together. We wanted to see if they could find common ground in a series we called Breaking Bread. Our dinner guests shared how their life experiences have shaped their beliefs. Here's Mehdi Khan of Aurora. I'm the first Muslim that many have ever met at our Breaking Bread meeting. So it's important, especially in this era with you know this president, to sit down with our fellow Americans and dispel a lot of ignorance that may be there. Well, Khan and the others will continue their conversation later this month, this time with a special guest, a mediator who has worked with Congress. Plus, we'll have an exercise that you can try at home to see if there's common ground. So more from Breaking Bread this month. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The coroner in Summit County, Colorado, is dealing with a mystery. Last year, remains of a white male were found in the forest. A handgun with a defaced serial number was nearby, along with gold wire-rimmed glasses and a black Timex watch. With all leads exhausted, Summit County turned to a sculptor. Beth Buckholtz is a community service officer with the Longmont Police Department, but in her spare time, she recreates faces from recovered human skulls with the hope that they will be ID'd. And Beth, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. So reconstructing faces isn't your day job. Would you call this a, a hobby then? Um, I suppose you could call it a hobby. And an art, would you say? Yes, and it's kind of a combination of art and science. Do you sculpt clay around the actual skull? Take us through the process here. Uh, No, we don't put um, clay on the actual skull. Uh, The process starts with a 3D laser scan of the skull and the lower jaw from several different angles to capture as much detail as possible. And then that scan is sent to a 3D printer and printed out in plastic. So the clay is actually applied to a plastic copy of the skull. I see. And uh, then you mold the clay around it. You've created a very lifelike sculpture of what this man's head and uh, even neck may have looked like. Uh, I'm really taken by it. Uh, The wrinkles on his forehead, his prominent nose. Uh, There's an image of this at CPRnews.org. And he appears to be between 30 and 50 years old, thin with brownish eyes. And uh, he's wearing those gold wire rim glasses. How, with with only a skull to work with, did you decide what he would look like? Well, uh, you know, as as you look at people every day, you notice that everybody's face is different. And the same is true with the skull underneath. Everyone's skull is different. And it gives you clues to what the face might look like. So on the skull, you can see lines where facial muscles were attached. Um, there are certain areas on the skull where 
where you can determine the length of the nose, the shape of the eyelids, um, the prominence of the forehead, and that gives us clues as to the shape of the face. Um, the facial muscles are, are first um, sculpted in clay before, before the face is built up um, with sort of a skin layer of clay. <clears throat> and we use um, tissue depth markers on specific landmarks of the skull to, to kind of guide the um, shape of the face. Oh, that's fascinating. So you're actually doing layers in, in a way mm-hmm. like facial musculature and then a skin overwrap. And so the skull is actually quite a good guide for what that person's external features looked like then. It is. Um, there are some things that we can't determine from the skull, um, specifically the shape of the tip of the nose, the shape of the ears, um, the fullness of the eyelids. Uh, we can determine the width of the mouth, but not the shape of the lips necessarily. And for that, so, what, you you have to do a little bit of guessing? Is that where the art right, comes in? Um, that's, that's kind of where the art comes in. Um, so, so the facial reconstruction won't be an exact portrait of the person. Um, but hopefully our hope is that it's um, similar enough to the person in life that a person who, who knew them, either a fen- friend or a family member, might recognize the reconstruction and call in to law enforcement. And that is what the coroner in Summit County is hoping with the remains that they found in the forest. How long does a a single reconstruction uh, take? To complete one, um, the sculpting itself takes about 40 hours. Um, Then the the scan um, and the printing takes about 30 hours. So... Um, in total, probably between 70 and 80 hours of work is put into that. But it depends on the condition of the skull as well. Now, I understand that you have done this for several departments, I think including outside of Colorado. Has it ever led uh, thus far to to IDing someone? Uh, so far, no. Um, sometimes it can take a long time. Um, law enforcement agencies and coroners rely on the media to get those images out as far as they can. Because we never know if the person is local or if they came from somewhere else. Um, so it, it depends on how long it takes for the right person to see that image to call in. There's something so wonderfully analog about this, right? You're sculpting with your hands. Why, why not just do this with a computer and create a computer-generated image? Wouldn't that be faster, cheaper, and less labor-intensive? Not necessarily. Um, and the end result of the of the computer sculpting that I've seen is not quite as lifelike as sometimes as the clay can be. Huh. Um, the lighting, the computer generated lighting on the on the computer sculpture, uh, sometimes seems a little off. I think the technology still has a ways to go, um, but um, I do prefer to sculpt with my hands. So uh, Beth Buckholtz, forensic sculptor, are you paid for this work or is it volunteer? Um, it depends on the case. Uh, if it's a smaller agency that doesn't have a very large budget, um, sometimes I will do it pro bono, um, but occasionally I will be paid for it. Yeah, it's a lot of time, of, as you've said, 40 hours of, of your sculpting work. And I'm picturing you, do you do this in a studio or what? I do have a small sculpting studio. Okay. And I'm picturing how intimate it is to be with uh, a recreation of a skull and to be sculpting a face on it. 
uh, to what extent do you feel that you develop a, a bond or a rapport or start to build even in your mind a story about the person you're recreating? Um, I do. The, the skull represents a person that I, I can help, that I have a skill that hopefully I can help them return to their family. Um, and so there is a bond that kind of grows there. Um, and just hope that my work is good enough for someone to recognize the person. Yes. And I imagine that if or when that day comes, it would be quite a gratifying feeling for you. It would be. What else do you sculpt, if anything? Um, I mostly sculpt faces, um, not necessarily on, on skulls, but mostly um, faces. And that's something that you do as well in your spare time. For, just, for just, fun. Yeah, for fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for sharing this work with us. It's fascinating. Thank you. Beth Buckholtz is a forensic sculptor in her spare time. Full-time, she's a community service officer with the Longmont Police Department. And again, you can see a photo of her work at cprnews.org, where you'll also find the number for the Summit County Coroner's Office in case you recognize the deceased. American and Mexican pop culture often make appearances in the work of artist Tony Ortega. He teaches painting and drawing at Regis University, grew up in northwest Denver, and he likes to contrast his Mexican heritage with his American upbringing. Ortega's work is featured in a new show opening next week at the Arvada Center. And Tony, welcome to the program. Thank you. Pleasure to be in here. Will you share an example of how you blend both American and Mexican pop culture into your art? Um, yeah, I like bringing images from popular culture, both from Mexican, American, and Chicano culture. So one image that I like to talk about is called uh, Tío Sam, or Uncle Sam, or, or, or Tío Samuel. And what I'm doing is I'm, 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 I'm appropriating images, an image like Uncle Sam from the World War II propaganda poster. And then I superimposed and overlapped it with a Day of the Dead image, a charro, a Mexican charro, w- with a skull, and put them together. And said, instead of, I want you, I want you for Day of the Dead. So you can see I'm bringing something from, something that's familiar to Americans, but something that's becoming more and more familiar to Americans, the celebration of Day of the Dead, which is uh, paying homage to to your ancestors. Yeah, Dia de los Muertos. And uh, what what sort of delights you about marrying those images? Well, I'm, uh, I guess my, my work, I've always been interested in identity. I've been interested in history, in culture, in place. And since I'm from New Mexico, my family's from Pecos, New Mexico, that's been very important. As, as a kid, I came back and forth between Colorado and New Mexico. I spent time with my maternal grandmother. I spoke Spanish. I spoke English. I went to Catholic school and, and, and lived in a small rural community there in Pecos, New Mexico. And then I'd come back to Denver, which was very urban, which was very mixed population. I lived in northwest Denver. There was uh, Italian-Americans as well as other Americans that lived in, the, in that area. So what I want to do is bring through that experience, through that context, I want to bring that through in my work. Yeah, your life has been a blend and your art is a blend in many regards. It can be very serious as well, your art, but there's also some levity along with the message, like putting Chicano leaders on Mount Rushmore, Our Lady of Guadalupe as the Statue of Liberty. Uh, you know, even if you're addressing a serious issue with that work, uh, what, what does levity or humor add, do you think? 
Well, I think uh, humor kind of opens up the viewer. They get a little chuckle, a little laugh, and they recognize those images, and they go, well, that's interesting to bring, make Superman Mexican instead of leap, leaping imp- the Empire State Building, he's leaping a pyramid, and instead of being light-complected, he's dark-complected, and, and then he has a, a, a mustache. So uh, all of a sudden you're saying, well, that's an interesting point of view. I mean, does Superman have to be American? Does he wear red, white, and blue, or does he wear the colors of the Mexican flag? What does it mean to be American? What does it be to mean to be American of Mexican descent? What does it mean to be uh, a person of mixed background? Uh, so I call these hybrid images, or I'm, I call the whole sort of um, grouping of work called uh, hybridity. Hybridity. Well, the show at the Arvada Center is called Art and Conflict, and the artists featured explore how conflicts and war affect society. You have two pieces in the show, and one is a poster that addresses racial profiling. Will you describe it for us? Yeah, it's a piece actually I did back in uh, about 2002. So after 9-11, I started doing a whole series of images on posters, posters that I found in the neighborhood. And I would superimpose that through a monotype pr- uh, printmaking technique. And, and some of those colors are transparent, so you'd see the posters. And these posters had to do with things that were going on in the community. They would be either uh, a Mexican band was coming to the Coliseum, a garage sale, the census poster, etc. Huh. And then I would superimpose it with uh, daily uh, happenings or daily things. So it would be anything from service workers, people working in the service industry, to being stopped by, by, by policemen, right? And then, so I super, so I took a census poster that said no INS, no FBI, no IRS, etc. And then I superimposed uh, two police officers, two white police officers, uh, pulling over um, a person of color. But superimposed over that, I have this uh, lady justice. So not not only am I sort of technically overlapping things, but there's also overlapping meaning in all of that. What More hybridity. Exactly. Yeah. There's an image of this at cprnews.org. You also made a three-minute video for the exhibition. It's called E-Spaghetti Western, and the film is a commentary on President Trump's proposed border wall. You've included some animation of a wall being built and being taken down. And here's a taste of the soundtrack that plays. recognizable Western theme for sure in there. The video also includes images of the Berlin Wall, even some images of the animated TV show South Park. And there's a a loop of the president's face melting off, revealing a skeleton. Some may see that as a a disrespectful way to portray the president or any president. Why why go there? Well, you know, I I don't think we should build walls. I think we should be building bridges. We should be communicating. Um, and I, I think there a lot of blame is going towards uh, the immigrants, immigrants who are coming to our country, who um, pick our picks our fruits and our vegetables, who clean our hotel rooms, our houses, who take care of our children, people who add something to our economy. So um, there should be a dialogue. We sh- we shouldn't just be blaming one set of people. The government should take responsibility in r- reforming immigration. Uh, businesses should take interest in in having this reformed also because they're employing these people. Um, 
I am not trying to show any disrespect to Trump. In, in fact, I think he's showing disrespect to to people of, of Mexican heritage. Just from the moment that he he announced his candidacy, calling Mexican rapists and and not sending the best people to uh, putting down the the judge that oversaw his um, his Trump school, etc., Trump University. Um, what I'm doing with the with, with the videos is I'm appropriating gifts which uh, can be found uh, free online and then I'm sort of editing them through through iMovie and then greeting them through pick play and post and what I'm trying to say with that is not necessarily say depict a narrative but pull things from popular culture like you said South Park and the building of the Berlin Wall Ronald Reagan talking uh, Woody etc and saying how sort of it's 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 more complicated than as simplistically as he's trying to put it we're speaking with Denver visual artist Tony Ortega he has uh, work at a show at the Arvada Center that uh, opens next week. And you talked a little bit about your childhood in northwest Denver. Images from that neighborhood sometimes show up in your artwork. It's like North High School and the old Chubby's Restaurant, the old Elitch's Amusement Park. How much is nostalgia um, driving your choices these days? Because there's so much change in that neighborhood. Uh, yeah, uh, Denver's growing incredibly. Uh, we live in northwest Denver in the Highlands area, and uh, we're lucky in, in that area that they can't just scrape the homes and replace them. But um, it seems like there's a big disregard to, for history, pl- past, place, culture, and uh, it's all – I think it, I, it's driven by the economy, by money, by greed, and um, – uh, you know, I guess there is a sense of nostalgia in my work. I mean, there's a, n- a sense of nostalgia in my work from living in New Mexico, growing up in, in northwest Denver, uh, living in Mexico. So I, I bring that together in my work to to help preserve that sense of identity, help have a sense of memory to place, sense of memory of culture, a continuation of transition uh, traditions. Is the change all bad? The change all bad. <laughs> Um, I wouldn't say it's all bad. I mean, I, I mean, I guess what w- w- I wouldn't say bad. What I would say is it seems very abrupt. I guess from being little and growing up in Northwest Denver, then leaving and coming back, the changes seemed gradual. It seemed like something that you could sort of live with or be part of or mix in with. But now this, the 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 changes seemed more obtuse. I mean, it's interesting. You leave a neighborhood uh, for two weeks now and you return and it's different already in Denver, I feel. You know, some new restaurant has popped up or there's the frame of a, you know, new new apartment building. It is rapid. I think that's what you're speaking to. Correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. You were born uh, in New Mexico, raised in Colorado, studied, I think, as you alluded to, in Mexico for a semester where you say you rediscovered your Mexicanness. When did you decide to become an artist w- with something to say? Um, I think I've always been artistic. Um, as a, as a child, my grandmother raised me or took care of me, and she was a seamstress. She did alterations, and she made dresses and shirts and quilts. And so I was always around that. So she was always sewing and making things. So as a kid, I, I wanted to um, to copy what my grandmother was doing. So I started sewing. She would thread needles and give me material. So I started making things. And then my uncle... Things being like clothes? Um, yeah, I would say they'd be clothes, okay. the quilts, uh, or, or just 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 making abstract patterns. I think sometimes that's all it was. Because I was, I was pretty little. I was like five, six years old, seven years old. Um, <clears throat> later on, um, when I was in seventh grade, I, I did lawn jobs and, and was, uh, shoveled walks, 
during the winter, et cetera. And I, in, in my neighborhood, a, an artist by the name of Ramon Kelly lived there, and I was able to work for him. And through him, I was able to see his artwork, also meet other local Denver artists. So I think what that did is it opened up the possibility for, oh, yeah, I could explore my artistic uh, creativity. I could become an artist. Uh, so that also opened it up. And then going to the University of Colorado, I studied art there. And eventually, I went to Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design. Were you a big Frida Kahlo fan? Uh, once I discovered who she she mm-hmm. she is, um, definitely a big fan. No. Uh, I'll say you're also a professor at Regis University teaching painting, design, and drawing there now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And this Denver visual artist, Tony Ortega. As I said, you can see his work at the Arvada Center starting next week. But right now, there are some images of his work at cprnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us. Thank you.